Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much. But when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. And United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome to Rory Sutherland's On Brand, brought to you by Alf Insight. In each episode, we'll talk to the big names from the world of advertising, marketing and media to dissect and debate success, ingenuity and the future possibilities for our industry. And today, my guest is James Overdeek, the founder and managing director of the Coconut Collaborative, who've been producing a range of dairy-free yogurts and puddings since 2014. So James, welcome to the podcast. Um, now, if you've heard of James before, uh, he also wins an award for probably most creative use of the umlaut in that he's the founder, originally, of the Goo brand of uh, desserts. And uh, you actually had huge success founding the Goo range, even, I think, plugged by Boris Johnson at one point. And it was a range of indulgent chocolate puddings. What was it, what was it that inspired you to start Goo, in fact? Gosh, that's um, that's a long time ago now. It was um, twenty years ago, and uh, I was in my mid thirties. In a nutshell, I was bored stiff, selling margarine in Belgium. Thought, God, you know, there must be some. <laughs> this isn't what I was kind of born to do. Um, and then, basically, I just thought the idea was just about basically Belgian patisserie wrapped up in a brand and and at that stage i i just had the idea did nothing with it um and actually um got scared about you know giving up my even though it was margarine i was reasonably well paid um and then the next thing that happened is i was on the chairlift with someone and he asked me what i did and i used to you dread these conversations about having to admit that i sold margarine so I made up a lot. I said, look, well, actually, I'm, I'm in the uh, chocolate pudding business, Tony. <laughs> and um, he said, oh, well, you know, where can I find your product? Well, we're just about to launch into Sainsbury. And, you know, I was bullshitting. Um, because I just didn't want to talk about margarine. And then I basically, I just woke up the next day and said, I can't keep on with this charade of pretending I do something else. So I, I said, right, I'm actually going to do it. Um, and then it took another year to, to launch it. But basically, um, I think the reason it, it was successful at the start was uh, I was selling the products in glass jars and everyone actually liked the glass jars. So although I, actually, I, I, I bought a container load of glass jars for about 
5p each, which is, um, you know, a pretty good deal. And um, so I was kind of in the packaging business, but <laughs> selling puddings on the side, you know. Um, and that's why I think it worked, because people basically collected these, um, these ramekins. I think there was a certain genius to actually the glass, because most people, particularly if they're actually providing hospitality, they don't necessarily want to go to the trouble of making a pudding themselves, but you can't really serve something in plastic. And so yes, the, exactly. the ready-to-serve nature of the thing was particularly ingenious, I think. If I'm right, I seem to remember reading somewhere that the launch of your business coincided with a massive heat wave, which meant that yes. sales were peculiarly unexciting at first, yeah, no, 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 because was, nobody wants to eat chocolate. In the summer, yeah, exactly. It was, <laughs> look, I, I, you know, uh, it was a... Although it seems a very, you know, it sold, the business sold uh, this summer for £175 million. I couldn't believe that, or £170 million or something ridiculous. Um, but, uh, and, and therefore, you know, obviously, you know, by, by all measures, it's a big success. But I can tell you at the start, it, was, it wasn't a straight line. We had every kind of problem, you know, you could imagine. Um, and, you know, one thing was quite funny, when the brand name was kind of conceived, I, I um, and it was conceived in Chelsea, someone said, oh, you know, goo with an umlaut, and, and the umlaut kind of made it sophisticated. It was, that was a stroke of genius, I have to say. Anyway, I went back home that evening and looked up goo on my browser, and uh, it said um, genital urology. That was what goo stood for. And I just thought, I can't call it that. And then uh, I had my factory up in Walthamstow, which was, um, and, and basically uh, employed a lot of um, uh, Asians. Um, and they all thought it was hilarious because goo in Urdu means something completely, you know, ridiculous. I can't repeat this on, on radio. I, I suppose the good thing was that I ignored the uh, those kind of war things that a lot of people would be put off by. Um, and I think that's where, you know, when I started with Goo, I didn't think this is going to be a £50 million business or whatever. I just thought, I want, you know, I want a business. I want to run my own show. I want to create something great. Um, my business plan is literally on a on a fag packet, and it's about basically trying to get the product into Sainsbury and Waitrose. Um, and that was it. And, 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 I, and I think, that, you know, ultimately that's why these brands or some of these startup brands make it because they're not kind of conceived in a boardroom and someone says, well, okay, we're not going to launch it unless it can get to 50 million, you know, tons of accountants analysis and all this kind of stuff. They're basically, <laughs> they, they start as a kind of, you know, an idea, a good idea. And then if they take off, um, it's because, you know, they're doing something right. And as you say, I think it, it kind of ticked that box of um, something that people could just, you know, slave over the main course of a dinner party or whatever when friends came around. But basically the dessert, you know, uh, something that you can just add a sprig of mint or a raspberry on top and make it your own. And ta-da, you know, it was done. And, and I think that's why it works. There's also a kind of genius to the name in the sense that 
Um, there's quite a history of pretending things are foreign in marketing. Hagen does is the most famous, yes, yes, which of course yes. uh, is isn't Danish. And in fact, there's no there's no umlaut in Danish anyway. Danish is a completely unaccented language, so the name which people think is Danish obviously isn't. And the interesting thing I think with pretending something comes from overseas is you cover both bases. You can be both new and old. So more conservative people think this is okay because they've been eating it in Denmark for 20 years. But people who are novelty seekers also see it as something new. And I think Krona Margarine was launched that way by Ogilvy years ago. Yes. But it came from Australia, was the great story with, uh, with, with Krona Margarine. And I think there is something really ingenious about that, which is, you know, when something is new but from somewhere else... Um, we're much, much, ha- you know, no, I always joke that no one would drink miso soup if they didn't know it was Japanese. Because, I mean, it's a pretty weird thing when you look at it. I mean, if, I always joke that had my daughter invented miso soup and come to me and said, Dad, I've invented a new soap and there's soup, and there's a leaf in it. I wouldn't have said, give up the day job. This is our future. So there is something really clever, I think, about having a, a hint of foreignness in something. I mean, there's another brand in... Um in America, which has been hugely successful, called Siggy's, which is a, which is an Icelandic skier yogurt. And the, the funny thing is that, and it was this Icelandic guy who went to America, called Siggy, that was his first name. And, um, you know, the reality is that, that you know, skier yogurt is, is, is probably quite a basic thing in, in Iceland, and uh, no one actually even thinks about it. But when they launched in um, in the States as, as this kind of Icelandic skier yogurt with this, you know, it suddenly became a big hit because, it, as you say, it's kind of, oh, this is what everyone in Iceland's eating. <laughs> the, the, the fact is that, well, we, we're now selling in Iceland and it's one of our, per capita, it's one of our biggest markets. So actually people in Iceland are eating vegan yogurt. <laughs> One tip, though, don't, unless you want quite a lot of Icelandic hostility, don't launch a skier coconut solution. Because when I was in Iceland last, they get fairly angry that the Swedes, I think it's Arlo is the big Danish company, isn't it, in Sweden. Um, they've launched skier and the, Iceland, the Icelanders consider skier to be kind of their cultural heritage. And it's rather as if you had a French company going around selling sausage rolls in the United States. They feel a sense of kind of theft and violation about this. So, so you, you sold, uh, essentially, you sold goo early um, and then you, 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 you effectively got bored, I think, and, and then decided to launch the Coconut Collaborative. Um, I'm yeah. delighted to say you you use the same delight design firm who'd done such a good job on goo. Um, yes. What what prompted you to get into the de- the dairy free market and the plant based market? Because you were quite, uh, I, th- I think you were a little bit ahead of the curve there, weren't you? Um, in some ways, yeah. I mean, look, um, I, I I although I sold goo early, yes. In retrospect, it was you know I probably should have hung on to it for a bit longer, um, but. Because um, to be honest, they haven't done much uh, of significance in terms of scaling the business. They've built a nice factory. I give it to them. Um, but anyway, look, it was a, a lovely business, and a, 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 originally the idea was that I was going to stay on and kind of, you know, um, build it to the next stage. But it's very difficult to stay on with a business when you. It's like when you sell your house, you don't move into the attic. Um, <laughs> 
and 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 uh, I realised quite quickly that I couldn't stay on. Um, I didn't want to take orders from other people, um, and so I had to move. But I was in my early forties, so it's like, okay, well, what am I going to do? Um, and uh, you know, I obviously had money in the bank and stuff, but um, I, I wanted to do something because you know I'm, I've got that kind of restless entrepreneurial spirit. Uh, I don't know whether it was a blessing or a curse, Rory. But anyway, it is the way I'm wired. So I, I needed to do something. I, I ran out of people to have lunch with, play golf with, um, got bored of going to the gym. So um, anyway, I had to do something. I, I always wanted to get into the yogurt business. Um, but with all of my things, you know, obviously most things in the food industry have been done any which way. So you've got to start with a niche. And uh, so I'm always interested in, in, in finding a niche that, uh, that no one else has kind of, um, you know, worked it out yet. And it's a niche that's moving. So it's a bit, I suppose it's a bit like kind of spotting a wave when it's still quite far out to sea. Um, and I, I'll tell you how it happened. I, I basically, um, I met these guys who were making ice cream with coconut, um, coconut milk. And I just, actually, that was the first plant-based product that I'd tasted, which I thought was any good. And um, I thought, God, yes, actually, that's a good idea. But then I thought, of course, I can make yogurt with coconut. That's brilliant. Um, and that's basically how... Um, I got into this so uh, because I uh, you know the, the, this, plant, this free from area it wasn't called the plant based category at that stage it was called free from um, and it was the area of the store that most people didn't go to it was a bit of a it was full of kind of you know people with health issues or or, or, or kind of you know what I would call the provisional wing of the vegetarian society <laughs> used to kind of go in there. Um, <laughs> but I, I tried to make, you know, and I just thought, actually, we've got something that, you know, th this could work. And, and reading more and more about people with allergies and stuff, and I just thought, this is going to, this is going to take off. So we got in early. Um, that gave us, it, it was still, for the first two years, to be honest, Rory, I was playing around with the product. I, I launched, but I didn't have the product right because making plant-based yogurt or coconut yogurt is, although you can make it in, a, on, in the same process as you make dairy yogurt, it's, it's very different. And I mean, that's one of the good things. It, it's, it's very different to milk. So it reacts in a different way. And what it means is that you can have quite a few problems. Um, but anyway, I, eventually, I would say about 18 months later, I got it right, uh, when it was still a tiny business. So you could make mistakes and get away with them. Um, we got it, we actually got it right. We moved to a new factory um, and started producing a consistent, really good product. And actually built a, you know, built a following. Um, still, you know, still niche. And then basically what happened was a stroke of luck, which was that, you know, the, the, um, this kind of plant-based revolution just took off. Um, 
when I launched it, uh, anything with coconut was the was the bee's knees. You know, coconut water, coconut oil. It's like you couldn't go wrong. And um, that then kind of morphed into um, as more of the kind of plant-based thing, the vegan thing, which then became mainstream. And um, you know. So it's a good market because it's growing. I think the, the uh, on on the flip side, lots of people are looking at this market and saying, "God, I I I quite like to have a, a slice of that." So it's actually fiercely competitive. It's still kind of in its infancy. I mean, uh, I'll give you a, a, a stat. It's got seven percent pen, uh, household penetration. So seven percent of households in the UK have bought a, a plant-based yogurt over the last year. That's still quite small. And the good thing is that three years ago, that was about 3%. Um, I, I think that's going to go to about 20% personally. Uh, my analogy is electric cars, which also was a kind of category for weirdos and misfits. <laughs> and, uh, and then suddenly Tesla comes along and does something incredible. But of course, with electric cars, you've got legislation, which is, you know, that's suddenly kind of accelerating the move. I, I'm not sure there is going to be uh, legislation on plant-based yogurts. I mean, the dairy lobby is pretty strong. Um, although there is a pretty strong case for saying that plant-based is a, is a lot more sustainable than, than dairy in terms of, you know, CO2 or that kind of global warming. Um, so, yeah, I think that's a debate that's going to happen more and more. Let's see where it ends up. But it's a good market to be in. It, it is very interesting. I mean, one of the things I have to admit I never predicted is I always saw a move to vegetarianism as being likely, but with veganism remaining a niche. And what I never really anticipated was that veganism would become mainstream or plant-based approaches. And I suppose that's partly driven by dietary health. It's partly driven by real and imagined food intolerances. So my wife is or claims to be uh, lactose intolerant, uh, for example, which now means we have to have two kinds of milk. Um, I, I, I mean, I, I actually, in evolutionary terms, by the way, lactose intolerance is very believable because... As a species, we, we've only been consuming uh, milk for about 20, 25, 30,000 years uh, since agriculture. Whereas, of course, coconuts, I imagine, as a plant, as a tree climbing primate, I imagine we've been actually consuming uh, coconuts for rather longer. And so actually, one of the interesting things you have to overcome is this idea that this is new and unnatural, when, of course... Uh, you know, I would imagine that for any kind of primate, consuming coconuts is um, is actually very natural indeed. It's something we've evolved to do. But it's very yeah. interesting. The, I suppose the veganism with the environmental question is that farting cows um, and the general contribution to global warming is certainly now a live issue. Um, in terms of the sustainability of coconuts, it's obviously very important to your business. Um, I, I, I th if I'm right, I remember reading somewhere that you can only grow coconuts within about 20 miles of the sea. Is that right? Yeah, 50 kilometres. 50 kilometres. Ah, what, why is that? What is it about the coconut that demands a coastal... I think, it, I, I think it's about the water precipitation, actually. You can only produce coconuts of, of quality within the equatorial belt... The top countries are the Philippines and Indonesia. And the two islands where we... So Sumatra is a big 
coconut growing, you know, that big Indonesian island. I think that probably is about 100 kilometres wide, so, so maybe that kind of works anyway. And the other, the other place is, um, is the Philippines. Uh, and again, the islands tend to be quite, uh, you know, they're, they're kind of dotted around. Those are the two kind of big exporting uh, nations. India is another big coconut nation, but they tend to consume their own production. Um, so just going back to your sustainability thing, obviously there is a, um, you know, we, we've got to ship those coconuts to Europe. Um, and we don't actually ship the coconut. We It basically gets um, uh, made into coconut cream uh, locally, and then it basically, we ship the coconut cream or the coconut water. Um, our product is a blend of, of both. Um, and, uh, you know, shipping stuff by sea is relatively sustainable you know we're not flying the stuff uh we're shipping it in 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 large quantities um but um yeah so so i think sustainably we we come out well we certainly come out a lot better than dairy um because of as you say because of the farting cows uh, oats is a big is quite popular because of course you can grow oats in europe um but Oat yogurt doesn't taste that good because it's very, it's quite plain, and you have to add some fat to to hold it. So uh, that hasn't really taken off. I know the the idea was good, and, and oat milk works brilliantly in coffee, but actually oat doesn't work so well in yogurt. Uh, we've tried it, I've got to say, um, and um, it wasn't a wild success. The the good thing about coconut is that it's the most similar of the plant-based um, alternatives. It's the most similar to, to, to milk or to cream. Um, you know, you, it's, the, it's got that kind of creaminess, uh, which is what everyone wants in a yoghurt. And, and, and there's a, I, again, there's a, something that's always in my head is that a Muller, who obviously are the, you know, the king of yoghurts, if you like, uh, they won't put an ad out uh, without having thick and creamy in the ad. So every ad they ever did had thick and creamy because that's what basically people like. And I would say our product of the plant-based alternatives is it is this thick and creamy texture that people like. Uh, and if you haven't tried it, Rory, you should try it because it's really good. No, um, no. I'm, I'm a regular customer, as I said, with okay. a lactose intolerant wife. I'm quite a regular customer, so you'll be pleased. You'll be pleased to hear that. Um, oh, good. Do, um, actually, I, disco I discovered it through online shopping. I mean, do you think that possibly online shopping and online retail? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. 
Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Actually accelerates discovery of new products a little bit better than conventional retail. I've always wondered about this. Because apart from anything else, it's easier. It might be easier to create a habit. I don't know. I mean, I'm intrigued. Yes, I. I, I mean, I think because it's more. Well, I, I don't know which is the driving force because you can. The argument could be, online shopping tends to be more premium. You know, you would you would shop in a card or whatever. So those types of people tend to be more adventurous in terms of trying out new stuff. And that's the reason it works. Or your thing could be, well, you get onto a, you know, you do a banner ad, it, it kind of flashes up on your screen. You think, oh, yeah, I'll try that. And, uh, and then it stays in the basket. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know which is the driving force. But, it, but we have a fantastic business with Agade. It works very well online. And I suppose, actually, food intolerances and also things like veganism probably help online shopping a bit because you can order your basket according to your intolerance so you can actually create search terms like vegan or lacto-free yeah. yes, which then essentially uh, make it much whereas a supermarket with its physical layout as yeah. you said you used to have this free from section of the supermarket which was full of particularly dismal looking breads that were uh, you yeah. know effectively gluten-free and it, it all yep. had the, instead of having the kind of feeling of indulgence around it, it was kind of a hair-shirted part of the supermarket, wasn't it? It was all about self-denial. <laughs> and um, yeah, you've escaped right, that. Yeah. You're in the coconut aisle, I guess. Yeah, you're in the yogurt aisle. I think we've benefited from, if you like, in, in the kind of, they call it the plant-based alternatives market, <laughs> in, or plant-based alternative milks. And, and the, the milks... Um, were the ones that kind of, you know, they're the lead category, if you like. So so I'd imagine in your fridge you've got oat milk and maybe almond milk um, and, and maybe some people in your family have switched entirely. And then gradually the other ones come in. So, so yogurt tends to come next. I think cheese is probably, um, a fu- you know, that 
lags a bit. So plant-based cheese hasn't really taken off massively yet, but but it's the milks that lead. Um, and you know, in the supermarkets, um, they tend to have our yogurts close to the the Alpro and Oatly milks, which probably helps. Um, you know, shoppers. There's an interesting, there's an interesting, I think, misapprehension that needs to be overcome. And I only read an article about this very recently, that we tend to think of these plant-based alternative foods as being newfangled. But in fact, they're very, very old. I mean, I think you had kind of nut-based milks and oat-based milks in the sort of 15th century. That actually the idea that that dairy milk is completely normal and that these plant-based milks are an anomaly is um, is actually simply a product of us not having a long enough time frame uh, when we look at human food consumption. That astonished me, I must admit. I, I, it came as a complete surprise. But I suppose yeah. if you consider uh, things like, not that they called it shelf life in the Middle Ages, but if you consider things like shelf life, of course, actually, unless you live particularly close to a source of dairy, um, until the railways came, there probably were issues with having regular dairy supplies. Um, so yes. it's an interesting, you know, it may it may well be that milk, you know, the, the ubiquity of milk in our diet is partly a product of the railways, in a sense. I, I don't know if you're a P.G. Woodhouse fan. If you ever shamed yourself in P.G. Woodhouse by committing some gaffe at a country house, you'd always head back to London on the milk train. Yes. I mean, I, I, I did hear a story that um, the reason that Hershey's chocolate taste the way it does is because the milk and I don't know if this is true or not is because the milk came all the way from Wisconsin which is quite a long way to Pennsylvania and therefore it went off on the way um, so as a result they had to put more sugar in it to disguise the taste uh, and, and and you tend to kind of um, you tend to kind of you know these tastes form quite young don't they so your chocolate preferences uh, are kind of shaped by your, you know, your childhood, um, which is why we can't understand why anybody likes Hershey's chocolate over here, but because uh, we like Cadbury's chocolate. But um, Cadbury's chocolate never really worked in America because for the art, for the for the same reason. It's interesting that, isn't it? No, it's, uh, Mar- Marmite, I think, is very similar. I think yes. if you don't consume Marmite before a certain age, you'll never like it, effectively. Yes. And it, um, it's, it, it's absolutely yeah. fascinating. Uh, yeah, it's yeah. true. And there must yeah. be, so there's a kind of evolutionary dimension to it. It's absolutely fascinating. So that children become very conservative in their food tastes at around the same age they can crawl. And, of course, it's when they became mobile, they had to become much more cautious because otherwise, rather than being fed by a parent, they'd be crawling around and experimenting with weird berries. And you don't want them doing that at the very moment when they become mobile. So this, you have all these very interesting things. Well, it's also really interesting, I think, to see very interesting. Very what interesting. we really like about food. So I think you're right that yoghurt is a textural thing. Ice cream, I think, is fascinating because really what we love is the texture as much as the taste. And we've yes. never really separated those two things adequately. Very, very interesting. No, no that's a very good You ran good your first point. TV campaign, by the way. We um, did. Tell us, tell us why you, you chose to run a TV campaign and, and did it work? I've got to ask that question. Yeah, uh, so uh, firstly, yes, it did work. Um, so it, uh, we only did it in, in, I think we spent about half a million pounds in total in January. We, I mean, the good thing about um, 
this market is that you, you know you, if you basically want to invest in January when every the veganuary when everyone's kind of trying to be healthy um, that's the time to go large um, so it's also a time when TV is reasonably you know I think December is expensive but uh, November and December are more expensive uh, January tends to be a bit better um, and and because it's a big category and and so on I I, um, I I did want to kind of give it a go uh, and and see if it worked. And uh, we we saw our brand awareness Rory, go from I think it was about eight percent to about fifteen percent in January. Now that would have been a combination of being on promotion um, in supermarkets, uh, having this campaign, doing quite a lot of sampling. So you know I think basically in my kind of um, you know, school of marketing, you basically want to do everything at once, maximize your visibility in one go, and that's your best chance of sticking out in the crowd. So yes, I think it did work, and, we're, and, and as a result, we're going to do it again uh, and keep on doing it. The, the, the issue that we face at the moment is an issue that a lot of food companies are having, but especially people who ship stuff from the Far East, is the cost of containers, uh, container shipping has gone through the roof. Um, so it used to cost $900 a container from Singapore to Rotterdam. It now costs $10,000 to ship the same container. That's increased over a 12-month period, uh, which is quite extraordinary. And it's why that's the same reason that no one can buy a car at the moment because there's a chip shortage and there's basically the whole kind of world shipping has um, has basically been a kind of perfect storm which has just caused these problems and and therefore the cost of our coconut has gone through the roof. That's the issue I'm facing at the moment. What's what's driven that explosive increase? Okay, it'd be very easy to say it's COVID. But it can't only be COVID. What, what's happened with this vulnerability in these supply chains? If you, if you um, dig into this, and this kind of makes sense. I studied economics at university, so I've kind of got that kind of brain as to what's going on here, what's behind it. And during COVID, there was a... Because people couldn't buy services, they started buying more goods, so, so basically, the volume of trade just went, and supply was, was more limited because of COVID. So COVID did affect supply because, you know, a lot of people had COVID in the ports and so on. So supply came down just as demand was going through the roof. And the reason demand was going through the roof is because people couldn't buy haircuts. They couldn't travel on holiday they couldn't do anything, but what they could do is go on Amazon and buy computer games, um, all sorts of things. So, so that's why Amazon went through the roof, and that happened on a on a global scale because there was lockdown all over the Western world, and that's basic. I I think that kind of makes sense um, because, it, as you say, you kind of it's not just down to COVID; it, it's basically down to the split no. between services and goods. And it will. And, and what was also happening was that um, just before COVID, a lot of 
ships were being taken out of service because there had been a bit of a glut. Uh, so, so supply was was tightening just when demand took off. Do you see what I mean? And then COVID actually then kind of had its um, impact, so that made things worse. So I, that kind of makes sense to me. Um, and and basically, what's happening now is that. It's going to take time to unwind. It will unwind, but uh, everyone's saying it's now the end of next year when it's going to get better. It's an interesting. It's an interesting thing, of course, that the coconut is perfect because, as you said, you don't need to fly them because coconuts are, of course, designed to travel by sea, aren't they? That's their means of propagation, after all. Yes. Yeah. I suppose Koyo is your leading competitor, is it, in this space? Um, well, where do they come from? I don't know anything about the origins of Koyo. Yeah, but they certainly were our leading competitor. Um, they, they're not anymore. So um, Koyo were, to give them their credit, they were the first coconut yoghurt on the market. And they were born in Australia, in Queensland, um, as kind of a uh, very interesting guy who I've met, Henry, who started um, Koyo. Um, actually, I like the brand name. I like the, you know, I, I, I really like what he did. So he, and he basically started selling it in Australian independence. Um, Koyo is a very high fat product. So it's a higher coconut fat than, than ours. Um, and, and what then happened was that someone licensed it for the UK and started producing Koyo in the UK. And um, yeah, I think early on they they were the they were our, they were definitely our leading competitor. But actually, what's happened now is that uh, they're still quite niche. But the the kind of Alpro and um, Yoplait and the the classic big brands have have all come in, um, and that's really the big where the big competition is now. So in terms of plant-based products, do you plan to expand beyond the coconut or do you plan to expand overseas? Do you have export plans? I'm always intrigued by the French yoghurt market on the grounds that if you go to a French supermarket, there's an area of shelf space devoted to yoghurt, which to me makes absolutely no sense. You know, you'll have a yoghurt aisle of seemingly identical white yoghurts that stretches more or less over the horizon. And I've never quite got sense, made sense of French yoghurt consumption. Um, I know yeah. they prevent, they treat Danone as a strategic industry, don't they, in France? Um, yes, because their exactly, dairy industry yeah. is treated as if it, it, it has military significance. But yes. what, what, do you have plans to, where do you plan, do you plan to expand to the United States or, um, again, Australia, yeah, New yeah, Zealand, yeah. etc.? Yeah, yeah. So, so, yes, we're already... Uh, there, so not in Australia, New Zealand, but we are in France. Uh, we sell at Monoprix in Carrefour and uh, Auchan and um, Gessino and Leclerc. Um, where the business is is mainly in the kind of Ile de France, um, which again in France is the place to start, and then it's kind of you know hopefully going to scale and, and, and spread because France is a good market if you get it right because the the French consumer is uh, very happy to pay for quality. You know, they, they, um, the, the other market we're in is Germany. Um, the consumer is a little 
you know, is more kind of discount focused because of basically Aldi and Lidl. But there is quite a big vegan movement in Germany. Um, So actually, it it seems to to work quite well. And then we're also in the States and, and, um, you know, we started in the States a few years ago, still quite small. So, so, um, yeah, look, I'm I'm hugely ambitious. I'm only 55, so I've got another 15 years of of work ahead of me at least <laughs> so so I would love to I think this time I'd like to go a bit longer um, so you know I think with goo probably in hindsight um, you know let go of it a bit early and actually realized once I'd let go of it that actually I'd let go of a big part of my life do you know what I mean um, and because yes. my work was my work, but it was also my hobby. And um, I really enjoy doing it. You know, it's like a, a, a I, I would say it's a healthy obsession. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm not in a, in a hurry now to, you know, I, I, I think there's loads of growth to go after. Um, saying that, you've just got to be quite careful. You don't want to overexpand. So anyway, it does help having a few more grey hairs this time. I've got quite a young team, Rory. So, so we're, our office is in in um, just in Bermondsey in uh, in London, uh, which is perfect. You know, bullseye target market, if you like, the vegan capital yes, of um, England. And you know, it's good fun. It, it, I I have to say, it's really good fun. But yeah, it, I mean, it's not without its challenges. I think you're spot on in spotting the fact that those niches generally appear too small for highly rational large companies to serve, but they're quite often where the innovation happens. And I think, yes. you know, that you know, you can imagine, can't you, that any, any really large company looking at the dairy free alternative or the plant based alternative, those large companies essentially left it a little bit too late because their you know, their requirement for a certain size of market meant that essentially, you know, they couldn't justify the investment until it was perhaps too late. So it's, it's yeah. a brilliant, brilliant uh, field in which to be an entrepreneur. And actually, I, I would also argue, I think, you know, if we, if we look at, you know, the valuation of companies like Beyond Meat, for example, uh, you know, it's starting to get kind of a Silicon Valley mentality, the, particularly the yes. plant-based foods industry. And it's very, very interesting indeed, because the science of it is intriguing, as to me, of course, is the perceptual science. Because so much of what we think we like about things is really something else. You know, it's texture with ice cream and yoghurt, far more than it may actually be literally the presence of dairy products and so on. It's a very, very rich field in which to innovate, because I think it's been dominated by assumptions uh, for quite a long time. And, you know, the, you know, what you might call the functional foods, but also the plant-based foods market has to be interesting. Not least because, of course, you can often charge a premium price for raw materials, which may even cost less. Although, I mean, milk is, 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 is probably, I mean, as someone descended from Gloucestershire dairy farmers, I do feel that the dairy industry is particularly ill-treated <laughs> uh, in terms of its commoditization. Well, I'm sure the price of milk will go up because it is ridiculously cheap. It's ridiculous mm. that a, um, a litre of milk is less than a litre of water. I find that ridiculous. The yeah. wholesale price of milk per litre 
it was when I last checked was about 35p um, and you know you get a liter of water selling for two quid it, it's absolutely ridiculous isn't it it's mad. Well, the difference there um, is branding, I guess. I mean, one thing one thing that was always a problem with milk is that until a few people came along, like Cravendale or Rachel's, etc., um, or Yo, it was sold as a commodity. And okay. I, I, I've been talking to dairy farmers and said, why don't you produce barista-quality milk that's specifically designed for coffee? And an interesting, yeah. an interesting other question is, uh, you know, I, I wonder whether, you know, the milk marketing board, by effectively creating this commoditized structure, did a lot of harm when it appeared to be doing good at first. Because, I mean, one of the things that intrigues me is you can't buy cream. Why can't you buy cream in little pots designed to add to coffee rather than it? I tried to buy cream in any container other than a kind of, you know, vat thing with a foil lid. Couldn't find it. And there mm. does seem to be a, you know, a huge gap in the market to premiumize those things. Actually, America has a thing called half and half, which is half milk, half cream, yes. which actually That's makes right. coffee taste pretty good. And yet it's completely yeah. unavailable. You know, it doesn't seem to exist in the UK at all. And I was just kind of, you know, we used to have, we used to always want to make our breakfast cereal with the top of the milk when I was a kid. Yes, and now the whole the thing is homogenized, yeah. it's commoditized. That makes total yeah. sense. And, and you're right. I think the milk industry probably has been badly served in terms of innovation. And, um, you know, they need, they need to find ways of segmenting the market. Um, and yeah, it makes a lot of sense because anyway, and, and by the way, that was... From my point of view, I, I think milk is too cheap, which obviously makes dairy yogurts too cheap. Mm. And, um, you know, I'm all in favour of them uh, charging more. I think it would be worth it. But anyway, that's... I'm not... Um, you know, obviously, my, my thing is to grow the coconut collaborative as fast as I can. So milk is, um, you know, I suppose that's the enemy for us. <laughs> Yes, that's of course. That's the source of our business. It, it, but it is interesting that in some ways a way to solve the dairy industry is actually found by uh, purveyors of plant-based alternatives because you suddenly look at, you know, what you can charge and you've escaped. Of course, the problem with milk as well, it was the leading known price item, wasn't it? People effectively formed their impression of the price yes. competitiveness of a supermarket very yes. disproportionately by the milk price. So they... They yes. had a disproportionate incentive, I think, to keep that low. Um, but this is this is all I can say is keep on doing God's work. As someone with a lacto intolerant wife, you, you're performing a, a hugely valuable service. And um, uh, it just remains for me to say, James Avadik from the Coconut Collaborative, thank you hugely for your time today. And that's all for this episode of On Brand. The podcast is brought to you by Alf Insight. And for more information on powering your business growth, visit their website at alfinsight.com. That's alfinsight.com. Uh, the series is produced and expertly edited by Ultimate Sound and Vision. And to make sure you receive the next episode, please do subscribe. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please give us a like and pop out and buy some coconut-based products. Thank you very much indeed, James. That was fantastic. Thank you, Rory.
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 